we actually okay oh, it's live now welcome to game of nodes a weekly podcast on the cosmos from independent validator teams Hello, welcome to the Game of Nodes, a weekly podcast on the Cosmos from independent validator teams. And this week we have Dan from Stakefish joining us to hopefully enlighten us with how the professionals do things. Um, <laughs> now, we've, we've actually wanted to make this happen for quite a while because uh, two principal reasons. Uh, one, behind the scenes, um, Dan did a lot of... Uh, I, I guess like sort of talking to different validators and finding out, you know, what people were, were doing, where their heads were at and stuff uh, around Prop 16. That's where I think we first got talking. Um, and I was just super impressed by the way you sort of approached everything. And I was like, right, we, we should get down on Game of Nodes at some point. And then and we were just talking about this in the pre-show. Um, when uh, some of the Juno devs dropped the ball a tiny bit on Prop 20, um, and may or may not have sent $32 million to the wrong place, which we did resolve, but we did do that. Um, Dan was quoted out of context in a Coindesk article, which uh, was not a good day for Dan. <laughs> but I think within context, actually, the points that you the point that you were trying to make, I think, was a very, very good one. And we talked about it on Game of Nodes at the time, which oh, is about the rights, you know, the actual responsibilities we we have as validators. So um so Dan, what was that what, what was can you remember what the exact quote was? <laughs> so maybe I should preface like maybe uh yeah I, I am from Steakfish, and then maybe some of my opinions will not be representative of, of the entire company. I'll, I'll say that first. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think what, with your, what you're saying is, um, right, the context was we didn't, we as all 125 validators on Juno did not catch like a, let's say, a, an act, a misplaced copy and paste error for where. $36 million of the Japanese syndicate CCN's funds would go into a shared smart contract that would be governed by the community, got sent to a dead address, and none of us caught that. And so, right, collectively, we basically, you know, fucked up big time, like, collectively. That is to say that collectively, Steakfish didn't fuck up big time. <laughs> oh, no. We yeah. all validators fucked up big time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it brought up a really important really in interesting question that I think qu quite a few of us had been discussing for some time about some of the responsibilities that we should hold as validators under the ethos of sort of this decentralization where um, should validators be validating <laughs> the code they push out into a live production environment or if that is even a um, a reasonable responsibility that we should hold because many of us are uh, multi-chain validators. Are we able to, um, in a sane way, audit every single upgrade that we push out? Right. Do we have the money to do that? Do we have the human capital and engineering talent or even time to do that on other chains? Or is there just priorities that we have internally for the different chains that we validate? Uh, what, where we can kind of take up that mantle. So 
I, I think the the issue with what happened on Prop 20, where none of the 125 validators did a double check, was probably not necessarily like a f- completely a failure or, or completely like our responsibility as validators, but maybe it's just like the system that we that has been designed was not designed in favor of sort of the realities of what we have in a multi-chain system. Cause I would even go as far as to say that a lot of these POS chains were perhaps designed from a lens that there would be sort of like these maximalist or loyalist validators that only support like a single chain. And so all your attention is focused to that uh, versus like having right many, many networks that, you're making money off of it as you add new networks, but are you able to pay the appropriate amount of attention? And I think before the show started, like we were talking about like how do some validators have hundreds of people um, employed or, uh, or the resources for that. So maybe it's like a quality versus quantity thing, priority thing, the system design thing. Cause I, cause like some people would even say like, maximalism, right? We are, we're in this sort of kumbaya multi-chain phase, but some would probably say that, um, and maybe I am included in that some, <laughs> that like loyalism, loyalty or maximalism is quite important to the security of a network um, from like the attention that we spend as validators and even like the participants on those chains themselves as we clearly saw with uh, the CCN uh, Japanese syndicate where they hold like almost a, a, a non-trivial amount of the entire Juno network in terms of stake, they should be according to some of like the POS security guarantees in a model of like sort of financial brinksmanship, not be willing to sort of act maliciously against a chain by dumping a lot of rewards or, or, or having claim to a lot of those things. So maybe they had like another chain that they were more loyal to but then even though they had more of control of us of, of Juno, they didn't treat it as such. So maybe there's some some interesting conundrums there. But yeah. So I feel you have a question, Usurper. Like you're you you you're doing the thing you do before you ask a question. <laughs> uh I would say that Juno has some of the most loyalty of the chains that I'm involved with, and at least. And so if something like that does not get caught and, and in, included inclusive of that is some of the best WASM developers and overall developers in the Cosmos ecosystem, a heavy amount of loyalty among the validators. You can see that in the test nets and those types of things. So if this happens within Juno, um, mm-hmm. I would think that this is one of the best cases. Would you guys agree with that? Best ter- case scenario. Best of- case scenario of having the right people involved to actually find an issue like this before it occurs. Right. And, Versus other chains that might not have nearly as much involvement or as much loyalty to it. Yeah, I, I would have expect. I, I, I think what's going on in Juno is absolutely incredible in terms of like the amount of participation that we've been seeing. Like, I, I, I don't think ever in history has like ninety nine percent of a chain or stake have voted, and then I think there's consistently, you know, a large majority of all staked assets voting which does lend to some of the, the major, majority. There, there's this, maybe it is also perhaps um, size of the ecosystem that helps with catching some of these bugs, um, right? With, with King nodes, like, I know there is Q, uh, Kiwi is New Zealand. Okay, sorry. 
so there's this there's this like <laughs> I'm sorry. I was about to say like oh in your neck of the woods there's like Same this privacy conference um, called KiwiCon and there's this uh, really great like uh, computer scientist and re and sec uh, security researcher Peter Gutman who'd famously said I think uh, or, or or had 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 talked about like this concept of like all uh, many eyes makes bugs shallow where, and then he called a lot of us, a lot of the security, um, ecosystem out when we had found some, when we had found like these, uh, pretty critical errors in the Linux, um, OS that was not caught for five years. And so something as widely spread as, as Linux and, and as carefully combed through the many eyes did not catch those bugs. And maybe that can be something said to, uh, to what happened on Juno as well, even though there's all this loyalty and very great participation. So this is also mm. commonly um, an argument for uh, practices from, I guess, like extreme programming, that kind of school of thought. You mm. know, the the there's a great website. Um, I think it's called Never Work in Theory, um, which is essentially, you know, every time you're at a programming meetup and somebody says to you, oh, yeah, you need to do this thing because it's great. And you're like, okay, where's any actual methodology or stats behind that? And it's it's um, never work in theory is is uh, I forget the name of the, the person behind it, but basically trying to come up with the supporting research or say no, these things don't work. And it's interesting because there are a few things that do come out of looking looking behind the numbers, right? And one of the interesting things about extreme programming, the argument is always about bug defects, right? Is that you should um, pair program and collaborate more closely on tranches of work because you find more defects um, and your time to live is lower. And there is actually some evidence for that. And it's, but it's largely based on the fact that pull, re pull requests um, and code reviews don't catch any bugs. They literally don't. They, like, they catch a very, very, like you said, superficial layer of bugs. Like, but more often they catch things like formatting, um, they do catch design problems, you know, like architectural problems or conceptual problems. But largely speaking, they don't catch critical security vulnerabilities because those things take a lot of time to get into your head to understand the code, then the implications, then the potential bugs, which you tend to only appreciate when you're co-located on that piece of work, like directly working on it. Um, so... There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff actually on the the never work in theory um, side of things. One of my favorites actually is the addendum to pair programming. That is, if you make people pair all the time, they're less effective than people that never pair. If you let people decide when they want to collaborate, shock horror, people come up with better results. But you know, the interesting thing I think related to maybe the cosmos is thinking about how the actual core software is written as well which is everybody is distributed everybody is remote first and it's quite often done heavily asynchronously by people in different time zones uh, working on their own so we rely very very heavily on essentially text-based uh, code reviews both at chain level and at an SDK level. And that's also something that we should be worried about. So a question we very commonly get on Game of Nodes is should all validators know how to code? And it's like, well, maybe, I don't know. There, there should be technical people in the room probably, but if the people who are writing the actual software can't find those defects, then it becomes 
the, the evidence is from the research that it's it becomes increasingly unlikely that those bugs are going to be found anyway, right? Yeah, I, I'd actually love to talk about that specifically um, because we've we've had pretty lively discussions internally at at Stakefish, and I'm sure other validators who, after the aftermath of during the aftermath of like um, Prop Twenty, what happened? Um, it's an interesting question because I, I feel like it is firmly within a decentralization ethos of the the responsibilities of of where responsibilities come from. Um, I, I, there's like so many ways you can you can you can look at this. Let's say let, let's say for example. If you're just operating nodes um, and you don't have any responsibility, you don't have any governance responsibilities, then you can remain agnostic just as like maybe AWS can be agnostic to the type of websites that it serves. And if there's hacks on those websites, it's not AWS's fault, right? But then the moment that you do expose this sort of um, governance, you inherit I feel personally, I feel like you inherit responsibility um, because you now have like this, you have the ability to vote and that voting ability gives you the chance to direct the, the chain for how it gets developed and what does get passed or not. And that is on now on our laps. And if that's on our laps, then we are not just like AWS. We are active participants in, in this direction. And also we are not, we are explicitly independent from the core foundation teams that started the chain themselves. Maybe if we were under the umbrella of the core foundation team that was pushing out a lot of this code to, um, then they would be responsible, right? Maybe the, the, the person who's pushing out the code, but um, we're supposed to be these like checks and balances, right? Against these foundations. Um, and, and so that's why I feel like we need to figure something out. Maybe it's not, maybe as you were saying, like we don't have the capacity to all audit um, or, or check the code. Maybe there has to be independent third parties that do, but then right. How do they get paid? It costs like hundred plus thousand dollars sometimes to audit some of these things. And like all the auditors are always busy they're of various quality and, and so like blame keeps getting shifted sometimes, but yeah. So I just, I just wanted to chime in with uh, just one point about that, Dan, with, um, so from what I understand that you're saying that because you can make a choice and you can vote, then, you know, inherently we're taking some responsibility for the direction of which way the chain goes, right? But I would put forward, an argument that, for example, um, you know, with Ethereum, whilst they don't have like an on-chain governance, you're still voting by picking up the new software and running it uh, because that's essentially a vote for that new um, client. Yeah. Then yeah. So if, if you don't run it, then you don't agree with it. If you do run it, you do agree with it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I feel like you're still voting in some fashion. Uh, whether it be like, you know, it's a bit different because on on a POS chain with governance, you have obviously other holders that can vote, not just the people who run the 
the nodes. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess uh, soy too doesn't really agree with me. <laughs> I wonder if um, yeah, like it's it, it, Ethereum is an interesting case because I, I feel like the Ethereum Foundation has. Um, done a pretty decent job of like dissing, distancing itself from um, let's say even like client development, right? We have like many different clients that are pushing out um, the software and, and we can obviously make a choice whether to use like the Prism client, Lighthouse, Teku, Nimbus. And then they themselves, if, if there's, for example, a, a bug in their client implementation, then maybe, right, it's it's not the foundation it's it's the client team and then the client team has to make sure they're doing a good job and then when we as ethereum validators choose to run that code should we also be doing like a double check or um as as a participant in the network um so there's two interesting things i like to pick up on here so we we've had a comment saying that that's a terrible argument uh to to null's point previously um, from soy to studio who says what's the alternative to not running the update is it to exit is that's not really a vote but is, is it not a vote it's like you're voting it's like the power of exit is 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 key yeah. to well, exa well exactly the power of the power of exit is assumed in a lot of voting systems as part of the checks and balances of the system and we saw this with prop 16 and cosmos itself has a similar mechanism, which is bonded tokens to a validator. The validators can shut down the chain. We saw that on Terra very recently. Um, and in addition, I suppose there's also this low level concept or not low level, but it, the governance concept of no with veto within Cosmos, which assumes that if you, um, the general assumption is uh, for no with veto that if you do a no with veto that you will exit the chain should that proposal pass. Whether or not anybody actually would completely say, no, I'm done, I'm leaving, I don't know. But, but that's what it, it's kind of convention. Convention has it that that's the case. So no with veto is sort of also not only the fact it has obviously a different threshold for w sort of turning over a vote, it also has this sort of signaling property, which is that if you're getting to around 30% of people who are saying no with veto, there's also a danger of a chain halt. Besides, you know, if you get to around 30%, yeah, you're into chain halt territory regardless of, of the actual upgrade itself, purely because not every validator comes back online straight away. I mean, this is something that we track. Uh, in the in the Juno core team very closely like what you know we we'd like to know ahead of time who's ready how quickly we can expect to get back up and that sort of thing um and stakefish are very very good at responding when we do ping people and ask whether they're ready uh but yeah it, it, it's one of those things where there, there's there's actually two mechanisms that on the surface look the same but they're actually quite different so just before we go too far down the rabbit hole i just wanted to submit a further argument to uh, Soy2 in that um, I see what you're saying, but if enough people vote no by not upgrading, then no, they don't have to run the update and exit uh, with or, or exit. So you still initially, like when they do the upgrade, you have to have a certain percentage of the network do the upgrade or you end up with a hard fork. So 
you know, if, if they enough validators refuse to update and others do update, you end up with a fork, right? So it's a little bit, I, I would still say you're still voting with your, with your willingness to upgrade. So, sorry, I just wanted to go back to is uh, still talking about it in the chat there, but anyway. I, I'd be interested what you guys think, um, right? In, in these cases, let's say in most cases, um, the, these decisions that uh, validators uh, make when making critical upgrades or infrastructure level um, governance decisions, we there has generally been like, it's been good, right? Like nothing crazy has happened where everything like burned down to the ground. But I think the Juno case for Prop 20 was, although it was not like a crazy technical problem, um, it was a mistake and no, no, none of us caught it. It, it. This is kind of like, it was, I, I felt like it was like a slap in the face, like in giving us a wake up call as as validators to figure out like what do we do in these situations or everything has been going good until this happened and so we we clearly um uh, miss that edge case maybe like the protocol the the pos systems designers or maybe validators as organizations communicating with each other and how to properly manage these chains what do you guys see as um uh uh yeah like what 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 do you guys what are you guys' opinions on on, on that like because there's an extreme right one extreme is every single update that we push into a live production environment ha- should be vetted by us as a validator the other end of the extreme is a complete agnosticism and then maybe somewhere in the middle is like you we have separate entities like third party entities that are going to do audits for us is it the foundation's responsibility to pay for those audits or something like that because remember, like, that, like the the whole like, um, right? If you're familiar with like Ethereum, like the roll up ecosystem, or like um, like fraud proofs, or even like in Polkadot when they used to have fishermen, right, do, doing these these checks. What what do you guys see on on this spectrum of like how validators should be uh, behaving? Maybe it's chain by chain different, um, but so I, I think I think overall like. The behavior of the devs, the foundation, the community, and the validators all lend itself to the success of, of the chain as a whole, right? So I think, like, it's no one's particular job, but it is like the community as a whole should have checks and balances, and it's in their interest to to do those as time goes by. Like, I think... From a validator perspective, you don't necessarily need to be a coder, but perhaps you know you should have a policy internally to at least look at the diff uh, of an upgrade and see if there's anything that jumps out to you, or at least try to learn through that process. But I mean, it's not wholly down to validators for the upgrades either, because I mean, security upgrades are a bit of a different story where we jump on that straight away and do it out of, outside of governance. But for major upgrades that go through governance, you've got everyone, all the participants in the network vote, except usually foundations, I think they try to steer clear of, um, you know, influencing votes. So, um, and you have to imagine being crypto that there are a lot of people in the community who are coders as well. And the 
for the most part, the the code bases are open source and, and they can go and look at a diff and they can look at the code base as a whole. So I think it's the community as delegators responsibility as well as validators to do checks and balances on the devs who are contributing to the, the networks. But there's, but there's there's two other interesting ways of looking at this there as well. I mean, so number one, like I, I'm on record. Number one, I'm big on Rust rather than Go. Sorry. Um, and, and also, as somebody who's worked with very, very large, complex code bases before, like the SDK is complicated. It is hard to understand what is going on. There's a lot of boilerplate. There's a lot of misdirection. That is the way it is, unfortunately. But back to what Dan was saying earlier, which I think is an interesting point, is that for a lot of this is a, a kind of thing that we see because of the, the world we're in, which is app chains, right? You should be able to build an app chain relatively easily. So here's a toolkit for doing it. Whereas on larger monolithic chains, there are multiple clients, right? And they actually are potentially moving quite differently, right? And and you can even fork and, and rebuild them and whatever. And, and, and there's a whole bunch of different ways of interacting. And there are actually models for different types of blockchains where your validator set is randomized, say. And as long as the... Um, as long as the integrity of the packets matches the right software version, then they can be proposed, right? So it's also kind of the not only where we are with the technology, but it's also the way the Cosmos ecosystem works a little bit, that we're, we're, we're talking about this one monolithic piece of software, which is sort of run in this really particular way because of how it the consensus model works, you know? Um, if there were like a situation where there were multiple clients or multiple SDKs or, you know, like, okay, this is very hard to imagine, but if there was a position where you could have, where it was common to have, and, and this would not make any sense really, because why would you do it in two code bases? But in large companies, sometimes you have two parts of a project in two different code uh, programming languages. Like what if one part of, you know, you had a Juno Rust implementation and a Juno Go implementation and some running one, some are running the other you know, we're we're just always assuming that the 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 whole thing is like each app chain is like this monolithic stack, um, which is an architectural design choice. Tendermint itself is is modular, so you know that's not a particularly helpful thought to throw out there. But I've just you know sort of said it. Just I think what Dan was pointing out about clients is is, is quite an interesting one to think about for the future. You know. I also think we go through a couple different types of upgrade types. I mean, we have functionality-based upgrades like introduction of laws and other types of things, which usually run through some sort of test net. That could be incentivized to be able to find ways that do like bounties on defects or other types of things because it's a much slower pace and we're delivering functionality or upgrades over a period of time. There's We've had a lot of WASM kind of last-minute upgrades that those binaries or even that code hasn't been released to maybe an hour before a scheduled upgrade. So there really is no team, no time for that because we're trying to avoid a chain halt or some sort of, you know, bad actor who's going to take a look at that and try to do something associated to a chain. So that that really has no time for that review. That's that's not something that's going to happen. And then you have, I think, is quite rare is this Juno upgrade, which was very governance focused, um, which frankly we had all the time in the world for, sort of right. And there was a, a little bit of a talk, clock ticking related to. Um, this idea of maybe a possible unbound bonding, but that never really happened. So that one, that one, I think there was no incentive around that. I don't think there was any incentive around that that review. So maybe I, I think we also look at this 
even from a governance perspective, we've talked about this in the past, I think on Game of Nodes is around, you know, there's one governance timeline and it's always a, you know, X day vote. And then that same timeline gets applied to any of those three situations. Well, those three situations might have much different timelines and when a governance vote should occur. Maybe some of those should be longer, some of those should be shorter. And so hoping that governance module also has the ability to expand to be able to deal with those types of things separately. So I think taking, I think my point is trying to take one cookie cutter approach to each type of these issues doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. So would I guess, yeah, maybe that uh, as you guys had mentioned, there's security upgrades, there's community related like upgrades and then, or, or, or let's say like referendum uh, and, and um, so if we were to figure something out, let's say with, with Juno, um, knowing that we had had missed things should, and, and from a perspective of, we don't want to kind of operate in a, without, we don't want to operate without robustness, um, given that we know that there are potential edge cases. I mean, it, it, uh, it, it's kind of like, isn't it, there's like this, this, um, this, I think this psychological experiment or like this phenomenon called like the prisoner's dilemma, where if everyone is expecting to act a certain way, it just, it just requires one person not to act that way. And then everything falls apart. If, if we're operating on this assumption again, that we expect all 125 validators, at least one of them to be checking the code and then voluntarily saying, Hey, I caught this like typo or something or, or, or problem. But then, right. The bystander effect kicks in and then none of us do that is not very robust. And, and probably like, it's not, let's say upholding some of these sort of fiduciary duties we have to like the people who stake with us, if we're responsible for running this chain and then also like um, supporting that. Uh, I feel like maybe there, yeah, there has to be something more robust than hoping that other people are watching it as you said, right? Like, well, I I could, I could say something for the future that uh, could be, you know, something that gets created out of to, to make it more robust. So we were talking, uh, I think last week, um, potentially the week before, they all seemed to mash together about uh, Gitopia. So there could be some mashup of uh, Gitopia and cross-chain uh, cross transactions that might be able to result feeding into governance about checks and balances on the code because you could, you know, prove it with a signature. So, you know, just thoughts while you're talking. Maybe maybe someone's working on that. Yeah, I don't know. I, that, that would be awesome. If you have more details on that, that that'd be pretty cool. I, I just think like there's, we have to probably also understand, even for large validator service providers, like we have to understand like there are limitations that we have um, from resources both capital and human um, to try to do the best that we can to make sure that like no flaws are going out into the, to chain to live production environments. Um, because like, if I had my, like if, if in an ideal world for me, personally speaking, my own opinion, not 
reflective of, of steak fish. But in, in my personal opinion, it would be wonderful if every single validator was validating everything that it was pushing out into production environment. But that's idealistic. It's not practical. Um, and maybe there are some solutions that we can kind of come up with. We, as let's say, validator ecosystem can also pressure collectively foundations if they have all this money, right? To be like, you know, this is your chain that you guys have designed. We're running it for you, but we're also cognizant of the fact that the foundations are supposedly meant to decentralize. And it's all we're going to be in charge now of sort of running these things or other de decentralized independent entities. Um, where, yeah, like maybe there has to be a, an auditor operator or something existing or, or something that are contractors that we have money that we're given from the community, um, just practically speaking. But I, I don't know. I think it might just be that the whole, I know I keep, I, I keep saying this, like I, I need to stop it. I, I stop being negative. So no, I, like I want to preface whenever I'm critical of proof of stake, I just I realize I've just kind of made incoherent noises for about twenty seconds there without actually beginning to say words. That usually happens before you talk about bashing yeah. proof of stake. A friend of mine used to describe it as Hugh Granting, uh, which although I'm not anything like that, it's a kind of trope in TV and film, isn't it? British people just go, ah, 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 except we actually <laughs> apparently do do it um, before we talk. So. Um, but yeah, no, there's, you know the saying, whatever it is, like um, uh, closest friends, harshest critics, that's that kind of thing. Uh, I think with proof of stake, that's like kind of where where I'm at with some of this stuff. But like that, it, it strikes me that probably there's 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 a whole bunch of different ways of approaching this that maybe we haven't considered, which is that um, it's much easier to establish integrity of data than it is to establish like uh, integrity of data, integrity of contract interface. By which I mean like what data is flowing into and out of the system. I mean, we do this with packets, we do this ICS, all this kind of stuff. It's very, very well understood. We talk about protocols all the time, but in reality, we don't actually, we, well, we do, we do build and work on protocols at a low level, but that's not necessarily the way we think about the software we're rolling out, right? Um, we, you know, that's what an app hash error is at the end of the day. Um, but we, I think a lot of the way, because we, we're kind of tied into this very low-level world when working on blockchains, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff at a higher level which has happened in, in software development in the last 20 years with um, you know contracts, contracts, runtime schemas, all that kind of stuff. And you literally see it in Cosmos and contracts. You literally see it in, you know, swag is generated when you run an app chain, you know. Those are code gen tools, obviously, but they're they're telling you what the contract interface is for a bunch of stuff. And there is a question, I suppose, for me, longer term, whether actually it's only really the interface between things like that that needs defining, because you can guarantee an API. You, the rest of it, not so much, right? And the actual integrity of the software, the intention of it, isn't as important as what it actually does, right? And 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 okay. Those those people who are listening along and are software developers, you've gone, yes, okay, very well. You've just described the difference between state and data. Uh, sorry, state and runtime. Very good. There's still the halting problem, and you can't just wave your hand about that. And yeah, okay, it, it is literally the most intractable problem in computer science is what you eventually reduce this down to. Um, but I do wonder if we're actually thinking about the problem in long term the best, the best way, right? Um, which I, is that it comes down to the ergonomics of actually establishing what that what it is it's 
supposed to do not necessarily what the what the code actually says because that is try you know get a go developer who's a good go developer give them a bunch of the sdk code and say what does this do i I think there's like yeah Yeah. i think there's like maybe a few um maybe we can draw from like some real world examples to like what what you're describing with like let's say the the intended use of 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 the code and what it actually does right and and perhaps in a decentralized setting maybe open source makes a lot of sense as well like we've seen also sort of that res- let's say inherited responsibility come from the particular clients that are served so for example like we have like red hat linux which draws from like an open source debian project but then they are they are like they license their software to people who and then red hat will be responsible for any defects that happen from from a, a an institutional client that that uses their software not not necessarily not necessarily debian perhaps um maybe something like that and and um i you know i i saw like soy too saying that maybe there's like use the stick instead of a carrot um right because we are definitely fed the carrot in pos we're rewarded for mm-hmm. behaving properly and there's like a very small set of of let's say rules that we have to uphold like you know that that are ingrained into the protocol but maybe there is an opportunity for the stick to also exist and if a stick exists where if we push out bad code we get punished then if we know that we're going to get punished we're definitely not going to want to push out bad code which then requires us to do all this auditing our, our, ourselves or maybe just like a follow the leader kind of thing where someone a, a larger validator maybe is more well resourced, pushes it out first, and then everyone's like, okay, like they probably had the resource to do it, or or maybe there's like a signal or a flag that comes up, but it, but it but it's interesting, like um, because there's it's it's almost like we we pushed out all all 125 of us validators on Juno, we pushed that bad code out, none of us took any like maybe I did a bit because. Um, um, of my comments, but like, it, like nothing happened. Like we pushed out, we, we screwed up. And then, and then like, like, <clears throat> like all of us, right. Like pushed out that bad code and then nothing right. happened with and no it, consequence. Yeah. It, and so right. uh, I took quite a bit of stick, uh, but yeah, the junior, the junior core team took a lot of stick, but then rightly so. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, I, I think some of these suggestions are cool, like maybe commission hit, maybe mm-hmm. yeah, not allowed to like deduct commission for a week. What, what, what happens if all 125 of us are now 135 of us are not going to uh, <laughs> cut commission for a week? Maybe that goes into like a, an audit fund or like, you know, we go into timeout or something like that. Yeah. Price but, moon. No, no commissions for a week. Price moon. <laughs> Yeah, but, but yeah. I maybe we need both. Care like it's it's interesting because some of the there have been quite a few validators been talking about like governance and right. How do we self regulate? Right there, there's like parallels we can draw to like the financial ecosystem, like Finra being like this sort of self regulatory organization that is made up of like industry, not necessarily of the government, but it complements like the SEC, for example. And then I think Finra also does even have 
fines or something like that, like fin- like can find people and you have to have like charters or maybe certifications and stuff. But um, yeah, like we got to figure this out. And, and I was even maybe this is an, a very extreme case where if someone was malicious enough or wanted to teach us a lesson and we were all still going uh, about our our validation of Juno as per the status quo of like, we're expecting someone else to catch it, a bug. If let's say the core team wanted to teach the validators a lesson and they pushed out intentionally bad code that let's say jailed a random validator uh, um, and none of us caught it, then it's like, right? We've been fooled once, we've been fooled twice. Like it's our fault then, like, cause like, if that is in, in our responsibility, like you can, you can intentionally like, like maybe we, maybe we'll, we will never listen, learn our lesson. And we're just going to keep pushing out code blindly into these live production environments. And maybe like the people, like the stakers will be, um, be hurt. Maybe validators will be hurt. Maybe our reputation will be hurt um, as, as a chain. Um, but yeah, like I, that's what I was just thinking. Like we can be taught a lesson if we don't change or decide to do something differently from now on after what happened on prop 20. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, I, mean, I, I guess there's an interesting question, right? Which is we're, we're, we're using these two tools to build economic systems, right? So like Dan says, you can build a system where you disincentivize behavior that you see as undesirable, um, which is, I mean, it's something that we've, been experimenting with like as in there are uh, now ways of building chains with um custom end blockers and all that kind of stuff in um and i know i've been banging on about fungible validator sets for a while it's something i've been tinker- tinkering away with um in my spare time um and there's a whole bunch of incentive things you can do as soon as you assume that however unlikely it is that a validator actually finds themselves being pushed out because of their own behavior or inaction that it can happen and that delegations have nothing to do with it that 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 there is there is some kind of writing mechanism in the set that is doing activities on some deterministic order um so there's there's, there's that way of of going about things which is cool and interesting and i think is pretty neat and there's the other way that that I was kind of hinting at before by saying like, you know, are we thinking about this the wrong way? And it's actually a case of data validation, right? Which is that is the system itself perhaps should be more robust to the fact we're in a trustless environment, right? So we're terrified of the idea of a hard fork, right? And other chains, uh, other technologies just go, which chain's longer? And then off you go, you resolve and you move forward. So, it is peculiar to proof of stake, um, this need for some element of trust. Um, and then that comes back to like, well, you know who the validators are. And that comes back to, are the validators fungible? Um, as soon as you stop assuming that the validators are not fungible, or at least are very, very slowly fungible, then you have to completely rethink your model in terms of what is the thing. Like, then you have got probably a higher likelihood of Byzantine actors, probably a higher likelihood of nodes being down, probably a higher likelihood of many other um, situations that wouldn't take place on a current generation proof of state chain. 
And then it becomes a case of, okay, well, what, what is the barest minimum guarantee I need to make a block? And that is essentially that the wire data is validated in a certain format. Um, Sorry, that wasn't meant to come straight up on screen. <laughs> I, I think you, you described such an interesting concept that per, perhaps um, gives rise to this idea of like how much agency validators have, where we can we can operate within the the rules of the system that had been defined defined from the beginning. So like the system exists as of now, as you're saying, like, you know, extraneous to uh, a validator staying within a set um, because it has a lot of delegations or, or not, right? Within the rules that we have defined, like we can, we can operate a certain way versus also changing the system in a way that is more in line is more practical with what we've been seeing because because i i would even say that right not to say that the original um creation or or the setup of how pos chains is not like let's say like canon of, or, or 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 sacred we can change it like we as validators and and with our delegators literally have the ability to change the the way these chains work um, right, through 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 governance, and and that that is a feature of it, right? Um, and and we've we've clearly seen some of the assumptions that some of these POS chains have had been created with. Uh, the assumptions fall false, uh, um, uh, and so like if the assumptions of let's say some security guarantees of these chains are false, then we should probably f fix it or, or, or work together, um, right? Obviously closely with the, the community to, 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 to make it better. And what I mean by some of these assumptions is that like, if, if the, if you have a large amount of stake on a chain, you should probably not like the assumption was that if you have a large amount of stake on a chain, a non-trivial amount, you are less inclined to act maliciously against it, but we clearly saw that not happening. So that went out the window. Um, and so, like then, it's like, how do we how do we encourage some of these security guarantees? If that went out the window, then we have to rethink certain things, and we have the agency to we as validators have the agency with our delegators to to fix those things to make it right. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is also the problem. Back to the we're just trying to create economic systems here. I think also a lot of the tendency with the level of maturity we're at now is to still be thinking in very simplistic terms. Like, oh, well, it's in somebody's self-interest to do this, so why would they ever not do it? And it's like, well, I mean, look at 150 years of economic history, 200, 300, 400 years. It's full of academic studies and reports on people doing stuff that is wildly not in their interests yeah. um and that's that's why it's so complex to actually say well what is the correct balancing set of things that you can do and the answer might be it's not actually it's not it's not intrinsically possible or it's not it's it's like in completely intractable to actually make a true trustless system and it is just social consensus 
this is an existential crisis that we probably are. I, I mean, I think it genuinely, because because the, the thing that's exciting about crypto, right, is that if you believe the internet is a real place, the real place needs governance and currency and it needs these things in a in a trustless highly adversarial highly hostile environment where you need to encourage people to collaborate because you were talking about the prisoner's dilemma earlier like the, the fundamental truth of the prisoner's dilemma is that in any situation that resembles the prisoner's dilemma coll collaboration despite looking like the thing that is not a good idea is actually the optimal strategy and if it's a repeated prisoner's dilemma the dominant strategy is to always be optimistic, even if you get screwed the first time, because the right. second dominant strategy is to follow what the other guy does. And you see that play out in real life. So we look at those, we look, we have, we have a lot of knowledge about how these systems sort of can play out, but we still haven't had the time to actually like work out whether we are actually incentivizing the right behavior in the large. And you know, back to then the validator set, it's such a small set that the big scale mathematically this should happen definitely doesn't happen because it's only 125 people. It's incredibly irrational. It's too small a set to be even statistically useful, is it? If you were doing research on a validator set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so many important things that we can draw from, like, like the financial system has evolved alongside the legal system for hundreds of years. And we've like tried to create a financial system without like a, <laughs> like mm -hmm. a regulatory system. Like we, we, at least at Stakefish, we, we, we reached out to quite a lot, a few law, uh, law schools. And we like said, Hey, this is what's going on with some of these chains governance. Like we issued out grants for them to like, cause like, I'm not like a legal scholar, but then we as validators here, like, we're in charge of kind of helping some of these foundations evolve and, and create these robust systems. And perhaps like sometimes it feels like we're recreating these wheels. Um, like if validators all have to get into a common forum to communicate and we're sort of like delegated this power to vote, like we're literally Congress in, in, in some sense of the word. And like there's checks and balances that exist for that. Um, maybe there's very fundamental differences that we have in with crypto with like this immediate transparency and auditability. Um, but it's, yeah, we, there's, there's, there's a lot of, I feel like from the more radical beginnings that I've had when I entered into the cryptocurrency ecosystem in the first place, finding that maybe like it's not me being jaded, but there's a lot of things that we can, recognize um that that we can use from from let's say the old old world i i remember mm -hmm. someone mentioned like like the etc and um the, the the dow hack and the etc and eth fork like back then i was a very strong like etc maximalist like i was all about code is law and i was and obviously i had to give up that because you know, <laughs> ethereum was was the fork that won out um but then, and then I, I was, had like Trump, like this PTSD flashbacks when we were seeing the Juno Prop 16 happen, where we were kind of like confiscating <laughs> someone's money, um, where, where, where was self-sovereignty in that perspective point or, 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 um, but then what we, what, what the, the ETC and ETH fork taught us, or at least taught me was that it was maybe code is not law to some 
extent, but like community was, was really like the governing factor because without, even though you are right, let's say we have like these blockchain principles or of decentralization, self-sovereignty, censorship resistance, immutability, all of that, even though we like, we forced those principles and hard coded them into like how we decide to govern or, or vote on, on chain governance, if no one wants that, and no one uses that chain, then that chain is dead, regardless of how like strongly you believe in or how true those principles are. Like if 99 out of a hundred people in a village vote that the sky is red when, <laughs> when the sky is blue, then like, that's, that's what's going to happen. And, and I did see that with Juno. Like I, and, that, and that's, I respect it because it's, it's what people like, we, we have no power beyond the delegators that give us our power. So um, uh, it's, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of like sleepless nights that I was like really questioning, like what was, what was happening, what was going on that maybe we, we can't be so like anti, anti like existing structures that we think are maybe antithetical to what we believe crypto should be. Maybe there's a lot we can draw from it, but uh, yeah. I mean, the, the most obvious is the like an explicit social contract, right? Because you pay your taxes because the government will do will give you defense. Um, in the case of our country, universal healthcare, not dental, sadly, it's impossible to fucking get a dentist in the UK. Um, it's the one bit you have to pay for, basically, and it's the most complex mess and do you get insurance or do you pay for it yourself and it's just like wow okay this is literally what everybody else has to deal with for everything um but like you know the social contract is like an important thing like it's it's the basis of it's the basis of the trade-off for like oh you know if i'm called up should i go to fight in all these kind of things where it, it is both um you know, it has a route all the way back to sort of like antiquitarian, uh, so um, d democracy and antiquity. But you know, it had this practical reimagining in the 19th century. You know, around nation states, and you know, what what does it mean in the sense of mass participation? And we still really don't have a clear idea of what. So back to the thing of like the exciting thing about crypto is that we're making a jurisdiction. Right, we're saying the internet is real. It is a jurisdiction. It is jurisdiction zero. It is just this place. Cool. What's the social contract for that place? Like, in the absence of like, this, and this has evolved very like slowly over thousands of years of history. It's very, it's very dependent on the place it formed. Like the the type of demo, the type of government that you have in different places around the world. The type of th the way thought around how government systems works and everything is is inherently tied to place and if the internet is a place then you know we also can't it doesn't just come out of nowhere it comes out of this huge discourse we haven't yet found a lot of the forms that are going to be relevant for it i feel like there's still we have all we have is jurisdiction zero and we don't know what to do with it yet but like you said dan the one thing that we have learned in the last few years and we can definitely put a pin on is that the only thing we're definitely accountable to is each other, but we might not be accountable to much else. Like, and if that's the case, then that's kind of like, okay, well, we should be, be pushing things back into more of a trustless space because it seems to me the more trustless the space is, the more you are just accountable to one another. Or should we be going running the other direction and saying, oh, no, we need to actually build civic structures, but 
you know, in these virtual spaces in jurisdiction zero? I, I, I'd wonder maybe in the last few minutes, like, is it like, cause like I, there's this, this concept of like, um, in uh, good behavior is incentivized versus like good behavior cannot be relying on altruism. Uh, but then as you're saying, like in the prisoner's dilemma example, like you have to like the, the desired behavior by folks there is that you are sort of um, coordinating and cooperating because that's gonna, that is somewhat altruistic, right? Like, but then there's also this concept of if crypto is like a dark forest and we're all like PVPing each other, right? because we're all sort of self-sovereign and then no one else is watching out for us, then like, how, how do we operate there? Um, it's, I like idealistically, we'd like to have like an altruistic system, uh, but that's right. The reality is in trustless systems, we can't, right. Everyone is incentivized in that, in that sense. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know what you guys think, but, um, Curious. I feel like I've been doing a lot of talking, so probably Nala and Yusupa should say something. <laughs> Sorry, I've just been reading the, the comments here a lot. Um, yeah, Yusupa, you got anything to add? But going back to the social contract piece, isn't the social contract kind of built on a layer of trust, though, in those situations? Like, does that does that actually align itself well to this trustless every person for himself herself type structure that well yeah i mean it's it's between uh, i mean we gets it gets really complicated if you want to call it a social contract doesn't it because it's between asymmetric it's between asymmetric actors in a situation where you don't have the right of exit or easy right of exit right and a lot of your a lot of your um a lot of the I suppose dynamics that play into your ability to exercise your rights within the social contract are fundamentally non-fungible, non-portable. Um, like your pass, like everything from your passport to the the land you live on. You right. know, it's it's incredibly complex. But like at its, at, at boiled down to its most simple, horrible version, the prisoner's dilemma is arguably a kind of social contract obviously not in the way it's framed where it's two prisoners but it any any zero-sum game mm-hmm. could be looked at as essentially a contractual negotiation between two parties right um and i think that's kind of what what you sort of bottom it out at is like not wanting to look at it from that perspective from a cynical perspective but just like you know what is the minimum expression of this idea you know, take out the asymmetry, take out the, 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 you know, the fixed goods, take out all of the other stuff. Cause, cause a lot of that stuff actually doesn't hold true unless we make it yeah. true. Um, I, I think Potma said something in the comments saying, well, you know, like, um, nation states can't just fork the nation and walk off to a new nation with an exact copy of all of the record of the resources and the goods and the land records and, and everything. Like, there, there was a case in Rome, I think it's, it was called like secessio plebis, where like everyone literally just like walked out and then left left the rulers to fend for themselves. But, but maybe maybe not. Okay, so we're probably wrong okay. about that. But there, so maybe there is a <laughs> just just that one time that you know that. 
um, so if I could interject, so Dan has to uh, roll soon. So did we have any um, burning questions, uh, whether from us or whether from the audience here that we wanted to ask Dan before he has to um, shuffle off? Do we have anything in our in our spreadsheet? Well, no. we had uh, we had some biographical stuff, but I think to be honest, Dan's been far too interesting to uh, to, to just ask some questions about uh, you know how he got into crypto and stuff. Which I think, to be honest, we've also we've also gone back as far as ETC. You know, I feel like we we we've covered we've covered some of how you got into crypto as well implicitly in that, haven't we? <laughs> You should hear my. You should hear how I got into crypto. It's it's quite a wild story. <laughs> maybe later. Well, well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You can't just say that and then. <laughs> I used to work at a law firm. I rage quit after the 2012 congressional hearing where HSBC got caught money laundering and terrorist financing, and it was like my, like, burn down the banks moment. So that's how I <laughs> got into crypto. So that's why I said extremist tendencies where I was all about like anti-government or anti-legal system, anti-bank. Um, like the complete, that's the total basis around uh, crypto, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when uh, Craig Wright got so angry with uh, the, <laughs> the financial system that he created Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not <laughs> Craig Wright or Satoshi, but unfortunately, but... <laughs> Somebody, somebody in the comments. Uh, I think it's Oni. I think it's Kevin has asked, "Where did you get that sweater?" Oh, this is a Faraday. Um, funny story. Like, I did a sweater swap with Dylan Francis, the DJ, and then <laughs> I I emailed Faraday because they were out, sold out of this sweater, and I told them the story, and then I I got one from them. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, wow. like I couldn't find it anywhere, but it's a nice sweater. Yeah, nice. Um, it's, ex- it's extreme loyalty to the sweater. <laughs> it's very extreme. I think the the one other question we've got is not not specifically for Dan, but um, we we talked about this a tiny bit um, in the pre-show. A question we got during the week was about um, how, in practice, a proof of stake chain in Cosmos would actually die. And whether it's possible for a chain to die or does it just zombie on forever? Um, this was in the context of Kerberos, where there are validators dropping off. Um, I think the reason that I got this question through as a DM for for Game of Nodes was because obviously Needlecast said, "Oh, we're going to pull out of of Kerb because it's just not worth it." Um, focusing on things instead, um, but I'm kind of interested on 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 your thoughts on that. Like, what, what does it mean meaningfully for a chain to die? Can a chain die? How does it die? How does that play out? Is it just the perception that it is dead? Because as long as it's still making blocks, right? Uh, is that a question for me? or? Um, I mean, the whole room, but I'm interested in your take on it as well, Dan. Yeah, there's like, I, um, I had some really interesting conversations with a, a friend of mine who... Um, we were talking about we were talking about zombie chains in the beginning, before the the show started, um, where he described the punishment of let's say bad chains acting as like ebbs and flows. So let's use for example like XRP, where um, right people who knew XRP there's like a lot of difficulties with 
with XRP would leave. And so it would, it would ebb away. But then the people who were not able to exit in time, because we have like sort of these zero sum games, um, would, would, would then be incentivized to pretend like everything is okay or even shill. The people who, who ebbed away don't have any more incentive because they don't have any XRP bags to kind of to shill to shill or and so they won't be like complaining or trying to speak reason to the people who are looking at XRP now. And then, right, the people who are shilling XRP are going to shill to these newbies who don't know any history of of XRP. They'll eat it up and mm-hmm. then it'll flow. They'll flow in, they'll go back up, and then people will realize it's it's a, it's a scam or anything. It'll, it'll flow back down and up and up, up and down, and up and down. And the people who are originally there to shill will find perhaps that they've done such a good job uh, because of whatever cycle it's in, uh, we, we are in these markets that um, that they'll now, they have the opportunity to leave, but won't. And then it just doesn't become about fundamentals. It's just a bunch of shilling. And so like, you can never sort of like kill a chain up and down. Maybe with um, some of these other chains, um, you get too big. And then, right, the bigger you are, it's sort of the harder you fall um, sort of sort of situation. But um, maybe it's, 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 it's like a, it has to be a complete catastrophic failure for a chain to fail versus chains that are not necessarily as, as hot, uh, uh, exposed. Uh, they'll suffer the same zombie uh, ebb and flow sort of situation. So even in Cosmos, you reckon it's more likely there's going to be, uh, and this is again a question for everybody, like you reckon it's more likely that there'll be zombie chains rather than, you know, some chains literally get to the point of not making any more blocks. Yeah, or, yeah, or validators all exit, right? I, th- I think there yeah. are some Cosmos chains that we're starting to see just no more development on. Um, and eventually validators will see that like if if let's say a large validator is maintaining many many networks and they miss something and they're just continuing like continuing on maybe maybe they'll leave so so yeah. it's interesting like for chains that have no purpose with a token with no custom modules you know I guess they could live on if they just IBC'd everything to another chain and then everyone just switched it off, right? They, the, the token could live on anyway, the, the spirit. The spirit of it. <laughs> but um, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely chains that aren't going, that have no, that won't have any economic value like stalled development because it's easy to launch a chain, right? And... Uh, but if you if you launch the chain with the expectation that there's continued development on that chain and then that doesn't happen, then what's the point of continuing to run it? And, you know, the investors in that chain of essentially not going to see any value from it. Do you just keep burning the candle? Do you just keep throwing the money? Uh, or, you know, is there like a collective agreement to just turn it off? So there is a chain that I've asked the... Um, you know, the developers of, should we mothball it? It's in a situation where it can't uh, continue at the moment to further its development because of where it was founded and where its agreements were. And I asked the question, well, should we just keep kicking the can 
or should we, you know, put it on ice until the development could be furthered later on down the track? Anyone have any comments on that? I mean, it's more of a coordinated exit is what you're talking about, like having a developer-led exit versus waiting for top validators or the consensus to be lost through people shutting machines down? Yeah, like, for example, what if you put through a, a governance proposal, a text governance proposal that said, uh, you know, what's the appetite to mothball this thing for a year, for example? Yeah. But I guess the the hard part of that is restarting it because then you need to get participation of all the original. Yeah. Or, or yeah, they would or probably create a new genesis off of it or something similar, right? Yeah, because because you've got all the because all the, the voting power is to be bonded, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was also a funny comment in the in the, the Callum who posts a lot of shit posts a lot during Game of Nodes popped up in the comments and uh, came out with a very degen comment, uh, which I love. Couldn't IBC dead chain tokens become collectible? Yeah. Yo, I've got that Gen One Loon C token. <laughs> anyone, anyone want to buy my Cerberus? Too soon. Yeah, right. So, and then, and then I think uh, Kevin Garrison said, "Well, you know, does a token convert to a de facto NFT <laughs> <laughs> when the chain's finally dead?" I mean, there will, I, there, I guess there will be IBC denoms hanging about, won't they? Like, yeah, for a considerable period of time. Yeah. I do think that that they'll have. I mean, I don't know if we've had any that's happened in the cosmos yet. I can't think. I mean, Cerberus might be the closest, um, but I mean, they're trying to bring that back through. I think the uh, governance to bring Wasm in or something similar. To that they're trying to, gener- trying to you know drum up some excitement there. Um, but I think it'll be slow and then sudden, right? Like it'll you'll have some validators just coming out and say, "Hey, move office," those types of things, and then that will happen for a large set of validators where there's nowhere left to move or people don't see that or something else. And at some point that thing gets shut off um, because they just think it's dead. So I do think it's it's definitely possible that one of these is going to die just based on not being able to reach consensus. On the topic of exit, I I think I have to leave now, but thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks Um, for coming on, Dan. Thanks thanks for joining us, Dan. Great to have you here. Thank you. Hey, um, something that I uh, was just going to show, because we had the question earlier about um, looking at the diff for a, for a new release. So I actually just brought up, um, this is the Juno, uh, Cosmos Contracts Juno page where the development lives for Juno. So I actually just wanted to show, um, if you go to the releases page, uh, you've got your change log, uh, what's changed in this new version, but you can also click on the full change log here. And it, this is an option you can enable when you do the the um, tag, but then you can go down and you can see the, the diff between the named um, tags here, but you can also change and you can see what you want to diff between on tags. Well, so if you so, click that release, I'm pretty sure... You know, release V6.00, the tag. Are you going to tell them that the screen's not changing or am I going to tell them that the screen's not changing? Oh, okay. It's not changing. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. So that... Uh, no, it's just an image, I think. I well, think that didn't work well. <laughs> I was actually doing that on screen, so... Uh, All right. I was just like, why is he talking about a thing and not doing it? <laughs> <laughs> That's because, uh, you know... 
it's one of those things where it's gonna be absolutely um, magic for the people listening on podcast players. I love it. Yeah. Um, just, what, what you just what you just saw was a screen go. share not updating, so that Null sounded like a crazy person talking about something that none of us could see. Can you? Uh, uh, can someone add it back in there now? I don't want to get off the screen. Uh, can, it's up. It's up. We can it? see it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, moving. Okay. it's moving. All right. So this is this is for tag release six and here is the full change log. Right. And now we can see all of the comments uh, that were put up um, or all of the commits for for this uh, new version. And then you can go down and you can just see all of the diff between versions to this new version. But, uh, you know, just if you want to play around and see the difference between various versions, you can, you can look at the different tags here um, and you can diff between tags quite easily with this interface. So... Realistic question: What what percentage of the 125 validators could look at those diffs, like say related to the Wasm contract structure and those types of things, and actually have a useful comment associated to those? What do we think? Ten percent? Twenty? Thirty? Yeah, maybe five. Five. Five percent. Yeah. So I and I think somebody I forget who mentioned it in channel or in the in the structure. I apologize, but I think. There was something related. I forget who said this. It was X one K? It said something along the lines of, "This is a a this is a um, incentive based infrastructure. So let's build some incentive around it." And I still going back to that. I think that's the way to do it, right? There has to be something that is whether that's carrot or stick. There's got to be there has there should be a, you know some sort of kind of incentive built around that. I think the sense of community and those types of things is positive, but ultimately, it's capitalism, right? So maybe, you know, maybe one thing we can do uh, better as like community uh, leaders, as validators um, and, you know, social, uh, you know, like we all have social accounts. We all have a voice in the social realm for the network and we have various platforms and we have responsibilities as um, validators. Like maybe something we can work on doing better is, you know, education for uh, other validators, which we try to do already, but as well as just the community and these types of things. Like maybe we can put out tutorials on how to check yeah. uh, various parts. Like, you know, because I, um, I think for the most part, it's assumed knowledge, right? So we think, well, you're a validator, so you know how to do this. Well, that's not necessarily the case uh, all of the time. And so, you know, the the base that knows how to do these checks and balances might be, you know, for one network might be the 11 people watching our, our um, podcast yeah. plus, you know, the three people on the screen and a handful of other people. So, I mean, um, I think, and it shouldn't be too hard to do for Juno because at the end of the day, the majority of Juno changes are basically um, largely dependencies or integrations. Like, so, the way the SDK works, it's very, very dense, but it's module-based. And most of what Juno, very little of Juno's custom module. There's no Juno custom module. It's just integrations with other stuff and some additional configuration and code on top. Yeah. Um, so well, there was there was custom stuff. There was custom stuff. And we're actually ripping it out wherever possible because it it's just not, a lot of it's not necessary. And too um, hard to maintain, right? Because you have to... Um, well, it goes out of track. With, with updates up, yeah, upstream. it goes out of track. So we did have a custom 
um, fork of WASMD for a period of time, and it was just it was a night it was a nightmare to keep in track. And so I was a big was a big bugbear of mine to get that killed and move back to mainline WASMD, um, which has been a lot more straightforward in terms of security fixes since we have done that. Um, so it's made my life a tiny bit easier, which is something. Um, but because of that, though, I think it means that it would be possible for us to educate validators to, at the very least, like a, a good bar would be looking into the upstream dependencies that have changed that are Cosmos-based and establishing whether or not they're consensus-breaking, let's say. Yeah. Because if you can establish that for yourself, you know that's that's already a pretty big thing. And then you can then actually start to dig into the code and see what's changed from those diffs and stuff. Um, so did you want to quickly touch on what the parameters are for consensus breaking? So what are the things that will break consensus? So it's anything that affects the state machine, basically. Um, but more broadly, I guess, conceptually, it's kind of the thing I was talking about earlier, which is that um the con it's the contract like the data integrity bit right if it if it if it cannot be agreed upon in the state machine by implication <coughs> the, the validation is not correct the 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 co the the commit of the block can't be agreed upon consensus breaking so that is that when the um the binary goes to compare app hashes or, you know, you send out your app hash to the network, uh, the hash of the state will be if different. If you have a binary that will result in a slightly different state to everybody else, then it is consensus breaking. Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest way to show something that's consensus breaking is what happened when Juno got cyber attacked, right? Uh, what's the node? Save the node to state. Boom. 125 different chains everybody yeah, so that that right. was not to do with the binary itself being different that was to do with everyone having the same binary that resulted in different state yeah yeah so this is back to we were talking about it earlier like what's the hardest problem in computer science other than naming it's um the halting problem right which is that it is computationally impossible to reason absolutely about what a program will do or what a machine or what a, a hypothetical imaginary conceptual mathematical machine will do because there's two things that happen there's state and there's uh well there's actually several things but there's there's state and there's also that you can feed a machine to another machine so you can obfuscate a machine inside another machine um via recursion and functions and anything um <laughs> and there's also state which affects runtime state right so in this case the state is the chain it's the database whatever and then the code is actually the thing that's 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 doing the modification so if you reduce this all the way back down to like lambda calculus as a really really simple computation model um yeah, the, the, the state is that, well, sorry, a stateful lambda calculus. The state would be the, the blockchain um, providing inputs to the functions, which are the, the code running, right? That's your computational mm -hmm. model. Um, and of course, can't reason about it. Mathematically, cannot reason about it. So, yeah. Um, but this is why implicitly, though, we have this block and we have this app hash and it's all deterministic. So you can make subsets of your code deterministic otherwise obviously blockchains wouldn't work and that's what app hash errors are that's what um consensus breaking means and so we have this inbuilt assumptions we, we have a bunch of inbuilt assumptions about 
uh, data integrity that are enforced by you app hash if you're if you 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 app hash and you crash out if it's not right. And that's why you kind of go, okay, well, but are there other models where you're still doing a similar model for consensus, but you're able to negotiate that error case more gracefully? Because if you can negotiate that error case more gracefully, you can handle upgrades completely differently. You can handle the client completely differently, and you can actually handle the validator set completely differently and you have to trust each other less so there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff there and there are other chains uh, and models and stuff that do very different things which are very interesting holochain is a personal thing that i think is fascinating that i uh, 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 only started reading about a few months ago and was like wow okay that's an interesting way of looking at it um and i think consensus models where 